And so as far as I can tell, what you do is you specify your long-term ideal. Maybe you also specify a place you want to stay the hell away from so that you're terrified to fail as well as excited about succeeding, because that's also useful. You specify your goal. You, you do that. You do that in some sense, as a unique individual, you want, to, you want to specify goals that make you say, oh, if that could happen as a consequence of my efforts, it would clearly be worthwhile. Because the question always is, why do something? Because doing nothing is easy. You just sit there and you don't do anything. That's real easy. The question is, why would you ever do anything? And the answer to that has to be because you've determined by some means that it's worthwhile. And then the next question might be, well, where should you look for worthwhile things? And one would be, well, you could consult your own temperament. And the other would be, well, you kind of look at how, look at what it is that people accrue that's valuable across the lifespan. Look, look what, so you do a structural analysis of the subcomponents of human existence and already did that. You need a family, you need friends. Like you don't need to have all these things, but you better have most of them. Family, friends, career, educational goals, plans for you know time outside of work, uh, attention to your mental and physical health, etc. You know, those are that's what life is about. And if you don't have any of those things, well, then all you've got left is misery and suffering. So that's that's a bad that's a bad deal for you. So so once you, but once you set up that, that goal structure, let's say, and that's really, in many, in many ways, that's what you should be doing at university. It's, it's, that's exactly what you should be doing, is trying to figure out who it is that you're trying to be, right? And you, you aim at that. And then you use everything you learned as a means of building that person that you want to be. And, and I really mean want to be. I don't mean should be, even those things, those things are going to overlap. And it's important to distinguish between those because that's partly, and this is back down to the micro routine analysis. So if I was saying, well, you're gonna to try to make yourself more industrious. Okay, number one, specify your damn goals. Because how are you gonna hit something if you don't know what it is? That isn't gonna happen. And often people won't specify their goals too because they don't like to specify conditions for failure. So if you keep yourself all vague and foggy, which is real easy, because that's just a matter of not doing as well, then you don't know when you fail. And people might say, well, I really don't want to know when I fail because that's painful. So I'll, I'll keep myself blind about when I fail. That's fine, except you'll fail all the time then. You just won't know it until you've failed so badly that you're done. And that can easily happen by the time you're 40. So, so I would recommend that you don't let that happen. So that's willful blindness, right? You could have known, but you chose not to. Okay, so once you get your goal structure set up, you think, okay, if I could have this life, looks like that might be worth living despite the fact that it's going to be you know anxiety provoking and threatening and there's going to be some suffering and loss involved in all of that obviously the goal is to to have a vision for your life such that all things considered that justifies your effort adopt the mode of authentic being and that is something like refusing to participate in the lie, in deception and the lie, to orient your speech as much as you can towards the truth. And to take responsibility for your own life and perhaps also for the lives of other people. And there's something about that that's meaningful and responsible and noble, but also serves to mitigate the very suffering that produces, say, the nihilism or the flee into the arms of flee or or the or the escape into the arms of totalitarians to begin with. You need something to shelter you against your own vulnerability. You can think about 
the world this way. You can think about it as your orderly little plan. That's a place. And you can think about it as the place that things that disrupt your plan comes from. That's another place. This is a bigger place than this because there's an endless number of things that can disrupt your plan and only a tiny number of them that can, you know, that will help you work it out. So part of the question then too is like, are you the friend of your plan or are you the friend of the thing that disrupts your plan? And I would say you should work to become the friend of the thing that disrupts your plan because there's a lot of that. And then if you become the friend of the thing that disrupts your plan, then you, be, you start to develop strength in proportion to the, to the disruptive force. And that's really what you want. You want to be able to implement your plan, obviously, but you want to be able to take on the consequences of error and learn from it. And then, then you win constantly, because even if something goes sideways, you think there's something to be derived from this. That's wisdom, fundamentally. Plan a life you'd like to have. And, and you do that partly by referring to social norms. That's more or less rescuing your father from the belly of the whale. But the way, other way you do that is by having a little conversation with yourself about as, as if you don't really know who you are because you know what you're like. You won't do what you're told. You won't do what you tell yourself to do. You must have noticed that. It's like you're a bad employee and a worse boss. And, and both of those work, you know, for you. You don't know what you want to do, and then when you tell yourself what to do, you don't do it anyways. You should fire yourself and find someone else to be. But, but you know, my point is, is that you have to understand that you're not your own servant, so to speak. You're someone that you have to negotiate with, and, that's, and you, you're someone that you want to present the opportunity of having a good life to. And that's hard for people, because they don't like themselves very much. So, you know, they're always like cracking the whip and then procrastinating and cracking the whip and then procrastinating. And it's like, God, it's so boring and such a pathetic way of spending your time. I started to pay very careful attention to what I was saying. I don't know if that happened voluntarily or involuntarily, but I could feel a sort of split developing in my psyche and the split. And I've actually had students tell me the same thing that has happened to them after they've listened to some of the material that that I've been describing to all of you. But I split into two, let's say. And one part was the, let's say the old me that was talking a lot and that liked to argue and that liked ideas. And there was another part that was watching that part, like just with its eyes open and neutrally judging. And the part that was neutrally judging was watching the part that was talking and going, that isn't your idea. You don't really believe that. You don't really know what you're talking about. That isn't true. And I thought, hmm, that's really interesting. So now I've, and that was happening to like 95% of what I was saying. And so then I didn't really know what to do. I thought, okay, this is strange. So maybe I've, I've fragmented and that's just not a good thing at all. I mean, it wasn't like I was hearing voices or anything like that. I mean, it wasn't like that. It was, it was well, people have multiple parts. So then I had a, this weird conundrum. It was like, well, which of these two things are me? Is it the part that's listening and saying, no, that's rubbish, that's a lie, that's, you're doing that to impress people, you're just trying to win the argument, you know? Was that me or was the part that was going about my normal verbal business me? And I didn't know, but I decided I would go with the critic. And then what I tried to do, what I learned to do, I think, was to stop saying things that made me weak. And now that, that, I mean, I'm still trying to do that because I'm always 
feeling when I talk whether or not the words that I'm saying are either making me align or making me come apart. And I think the alignment, I really do think the alignment, is, is, I think alignment is the right way of conceptualizing it because I think if you say things that are as true as you can say them, let's say, then they come up, they come out of the depths inside of you. Because well, we don't know where thoughts come from. We don't know how far down into your substructure the thoughts emerge. We don't know what processes of physiological alignment are necessary for you to speak from the core of your being. We don't understand any of that. We don't even conceptualize that, but I believe that you can feel that. And I learned some of that from reading Carl Rogers, by the way, who's a great clinician, uh, because he talked about mental health in part as the coherence between the the, the, the spiritual or the, or the abstract and the physical, that the two things were aligned. And, and there's a lot of idea of alignment in, in psychoanalytic and clinical thinking. But anyways, I decided that I would start practicing not saying things that would make me weak. And what happened was that I had to stop saying almost everything that I was saying. I would say 95% of it. It's a hell of a shock to wake up and, and, I mean, this was over a few months, but it's a hell of a shock to wake up and realize that you're mostly dead wood. It's a shock, you know, and you might think, well, do you really want all of that to burn off? It's like, well, there's nothing left but a little husk, 5% of you. It's like, well, if that 5% is solid, then maybe that's exactly what you want to have happen. Best thing you can do is teach people to write because there's no difference between that and thinking and one of the things that just blows me away about universities is that no one ever tells students why they should write something it's like well you have to do this assignment well why are you writing well you need the grade it's like no you need to learn to think because thinking makes you act effectively in the world. Thinking makes you win the battles you undertake. And those could be battles for good things. If you can think and speak and write, you are absolutely deadly. Nothing can get in your way. So that's why you learn to write. It's like, well, I can't believe that people aren't just told that. It's, it's, it's like, it's the most powerful weapon you can possibly provide someone with. And I, I mean, I know lots of people who've been staggeringly successful and watched them throughout my life. I mean, those people, you don't want to have an argument with them. They'll just slash you into pieces. And not in a malevolent way. It's like, if you're going to make your point and they're going to make their point, you better have your points organized because otherwise you are going to look like and be an absolute idiot. You are not going to get anywhere. And if you can formulate your arguments coherently, and make a presentation, if you can speak to people, if you can lay out a proposal, God, people give you money, they give you opportunities, you have influence. So my question was, um, where, where do you, how do you do that if you don't know where you wanna go? Because that's kind of where I got stuck on your, your future authoring program yeah, because yeah. Okay, that's, that's a good question. That's a really good question. So there's this notion in the Old Testament that morality is following a sequence of prohibitions. There's a bunch of bad things you shouldn't do, and then basically you're good enough. And, and, and I think there's wisdom in that. I, I think that's kind of where children start, right? You, you, I mean, I love children and all that, but they're, they're, they're crazy little creatures, and they need to be, you know, civilized. And well, partly what you do is you, you lay prohibitions on them, and, Mostly what you're trying to do is lay prohibitions on them 
for the behaviors that if they manifested would make their life miserable. So this is why this thing that I've said to people has become this crazy internet meme, but that's to clean up your room. And, <laughs> which, which is a lot better and more useful than people think. It's a lot harder too. But the, the, thing, the first thing you do, I think, and I learned this in part from Solzhenitsyn when he was trying to iron out his soul when he was in the gulag because he was trying to figure out how he got there, how he contributed to how he got there. You know, not Stalin and Hitler, even though they were kind of to blame, you know, but there wasn't much he could do about that. I think what you have to do, and, and this is part of humility, is you have to look around you within your sphere of influence, like the direct sphere of influence, and fix the things that announce themselves as in need of repair. And those are often small things, you know, and, and they can be like your room. Put it in order, because the thing is, it isn't exactly so important that your room is in order, although it is. What's important is that you learn how to distinguish between chaos and order and to be able to act in a manner that produces order. And I think you can, you can do something as simple as just sit on your bed and think, okay, there's probably like five things I could do today so that tomorrow morning is slightly better than this morning was, at least, or at least I'm not falling behind. And those will usually be it's like having to eat a toad in the morning, right? It's like, it's not going to be something you want to do. There'll be things you're trying to avoid. They're snakes, essentially. But if you ask yourself, like you're asking someone, which I think is a form of prayer, if you ask yourself, instead of telling yourself, you know, what is it that I could do to set things more right today that I would actually do? It's usually some small thing because you're not that disciplined, you know? Then you can go do it. And then you, you put the world together a little more when you do that, and that spreads out. But you also, put your, you also construct yourself into something that's better able to call order forth from chaos. And that makes you just incrementally stronger. And then the next day, you can maybe take on a slightly larger task. And like you get the benefit of compound interest if you do that. It's a tremendously powerful technique. And I think if you do that, at some point, instead of just having to fix things up that are not good, you'll start to get a glimmer of the positive things that you could do, you know, the positive things that you could do that would actually constitute a vision. When I was 25 or so, I probably weighed about 138 pounds. I smoked like a pack of cigarettes a day. I drank tremendous amount of alcohol. I was from northern Alberta, this rough little town up in northern Alberta called Fairview and you know there were long winters there and my friends were heavy drinkers and most of them dropped out of school by the time they were 15 or 16, went off to work on the oil rigs and you know it was a rough town and we drank a lot. I started when I was 14 and you know um, and so I was, I had a lot of bad habits let's say and uh, things that were, and I wasn't in great shape physically and I was also still intellectually obsessed by as I am now and uh, so that would have been that would have been in 85 but when I but I decided around then about 85 84 something like that maybe a little earlier that I was really going to try to get my act together and uh, so I started doing that I you know I first of all I I quit smoking well that took a long time because I eventually had to quit drinking too in order to quit smoking and I started working out and playing sports which I'd never done I had a fine time when I was a kid and but uh, I needed really to get disciplined and I had to do it because I was working on these hard problems that you know that I've been discussing with all of you and I've been working on them really you know obsessively since I was 
probably about 18, maybe even earlier than that. And got to the point around 25 when I was in graduate school trying to get my PhD, so doing all my research. Like I published 15 papers by the time I graduated with my PhD, which was by, I think, by a fairly large measure, the most papers that any graduate student at that time had ever published at McGill. I think that's right. Might have been twice as many or maybe twice as many, maybe even three times as many. And at the same time, I wrote Maps of Meaning, which was a terrible, terrible, terribly difficult thing to do because I was writing about three hours a day doing that. And I couldn't do all that and continue with my misbehavior, you know, my sort of, my, what, what would you say, my, my, my hedonistic, my hedonistic, my massive hedonistic consumption of alcohol and all of that. I just couldn't keep it up and also work seriously on the issues that were at hand. So, you know, I had to stop. That's a sacrifice. I had to stop messing about and straighten myself out. You're actually tougher than you think. You never knew that. And maybe you didn't want to take on the responsibility because, you know, people play a role in their own demise, so to speak. When you had opportunity to go out and explore or withdraw because you were afraid, you chose to withdraw because you were afraid. So it's not only that you were overprotected often, it's that you were willing to take advantage of the fact that you were overprotected and run back there whenever you had the opportunity. You know, so maybe you're a kid in the playground, right? And you're having some trouble with other kids and you know in the back of your mind, I should deal, this with, deal with this myself. But you go and tell your mom and get her to intervene. And you know that that's not right. You know that you're breaking the social contract, but it's easier. And so that's what you do. You run off to an authority figure and hide behind the great father, right? Roughly speaking. Well, the problem with that is you don't learn how to do it yourself. So then you have to relearn it painfully when you're 40. So then you take people out you say, well, what are you afraid of? Rank it from one to 10. So 10 is, we'll make a list of 10 things you're afraid of. The least, the thing you're least afraid of we'll call number 10. So we'll start with that. Okay, well, I'm afraid of elevators. Okay, well, let's, let's look at a picture of an elevator. Let's have you imagine being in an elevator. Let's go out to an elevator and let you watch the terrible jaws of death open because that's how you're responding to it symbolically, right? And you're gonna do that at it at the, the closest proximity you can manage. You find out you go do that, it works. You're nervous as hell, especially an, from an anticipatory perspective, shaking. You go out, you stop, you watch it happen, and you actually calm down. You do that 10 times and it no longer bothers you. Well, what you've learned that you didn't die, but more importantly than that, you've learned that you could withstand the threat of death. That's what you've learned. And then you move a little closer, and then you move a little closer, and then you move a little closer, and finally you're back in what's no longer the elevator from a symbolic perspective. It's a tomb, right? It's, it's, it's a place of enclosure and isolation. And you learn, hmm, turns out I can withstand that. And then you're much more together, much more confident. And that's often one of the things that often happens in situations like that. I've seen this multiple times is that if you run someone through an exposure training process like that and, and toughen them up, they'll often start standing up to people around them in a way they never did before. If you concentrate solely on your career, you can get a long way in your career. And I would say that that's a strategy that a minority of men preferentially do. That, that's all they do. They work like 70, 80 hours a week. They go flat out on their career. They're staking everything on the small probability of exceptional status in a narrow domain. But it's, it's hard on them. They don't have a life. 
It's very difficult for them to have a family. They don't know how to take any leisure activity, like they get very one-dimensional. Now, it may be that that unidimensionality is the price you have to pay to be exceptional at one thing, right? Because if you're gonna be something like a genius-level mathematician, and you wanna do that for, or a scientist, say, it's like, you're in your lab, you're in your lab all the time, you're working 70 hours a week or 80 hours a week, you're smart, you're dedicated, you're unidimensional, and that's how you get to beat all the other people who are doing that. It's the only way. But the problem is you don't get a life. Now, if you love being a scientist and you have that kind of focus of mind, well, first of all, you're a rare person, and second, you're gonna pay for it. But fine, more power to you. But, but it's a... It's a risky business to do that. You sacrifice a lot for it. You know, and I would say most often, if you're speaking about having a healthy life, that isn't what you do. You spread yourself out more. So, you know, you have a family, you have some things that you do outside of work that are meaningful to you and useful. You, you have a network of friends. Um, well, that, that, those three things alone, or four things alone, are plenty to keep you well-oriented. And then if one of those things collapses, you know, everything doesn't go. Now, the, the price you pay for that is, the more you strive to optimize that balance, the less likely you are to be fantastically successful at any single one of them. But you might have a very, you know, if you con consider your life as a whole, that might be a winning strategy. I had a plumber once, you know. It was, the night, it was the night before we were putting drywall in our house. We were redoing a house, and he had put in all the plastic piping, you know, and I was going to test the joints. They're supposed to be glued together with this pipe glue, right? And I said, I told him I had to test the joints, and he said, well, you don't have to test my joints. They never leak. And I thought, yeah, that's okay. How about if I test them? So I went up on the third floor and filled the pipes with water, capping them in the basement like you're supposed to. And like half an hour later, I had two inches of water in the basement. There were 30 leaking joints. And that was the night before the drywallers were supposed to show up. So, well, so he wasn't particularly competent. That's the point of that story. But even more so, he had put a bunch of the plastic pipe outside where the drywall would be. So it would have been sticking through the wall. So I spent a frenetic night, you know, sawing through plastic pipe and re-gluing joints so that my well, so that the dry rollers could come in. What's the point? If you're gonna be a plumber, man, be a good plumber. Because otherwise all you do is go out there and cause trouble. We don't need people to cause more trouble. We need people to solve problems. You know, and so you can be a tradesman and you can be, you can make a lot of money as a tradesperson. It's a bloody, reliable, honorable, uh, forthright, productive way of making a living. And there is a hell of a lot of difference between a working man who knows what he's doing and one who doesn't both in terms of skill and ethics, right? And you work with someone who knows what they're doing, it's a bloody pleasure. They tell you what they're gonna do, they tell you how much it will cost, they go and do it, it works, and you pay them. Perfect, everyone's happy. And that's what happens when you have genuine hierarchies of competence. And so you, you listen to these panderers of egalitarianism, egalitarianism and equity, and they fail to recognize completely that there are differences in rank between people. It's not such a terrible thing, man. Maybe you wouldn't be a great lawyer. Like, it's certainly possible. Most people aren't. But that doesn't mean there isn't something you could be great at. There's lots of hierarchies to attempt to climb, and if you fail in one, go try in another. But the point is, you're still trying to aim for the top, and what the hell are you gonna do if you don't try to aim for the top? You know, flap about uselessly and whine about your life? It's not helpful. 
It'll just make you miserable. You're not reliable to anyone. You can't help out in a crisis. It's like, so you tell young people, and this is another message for conservatives, like, I don't care what you're going to do, but go out there and make something of yourself for God's sake. Be an honest person and work and get to the top of whatever it is that you want to get to the top of. You know, and, 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 and stand up for yourself like a respectable human being and be a bit of a light on the world instead of a blight. You know, and you can tell young people that and they haven't been told that by anyone now. And so the young men are so hungry for that that it's, it's painful to watch. They're so relieved when fi- someone finally comes up and says, hey, you know, you, you get your act together a bit, discipline yourself, see if you can learn to tell the truth, concentrate on something for a year or two, you could be a bloody world beater. They think, really? That's possible? Wow, that would be, that would be interesting. That might make life, life worth living. It's like, yeah, it might. So why don't you go do it? That's what the damn universities were supposed to be teaching people. And they've forgotten that. I went to Harvard a month ago, a month and a half. I used to teach there. And I talked to a bunch of students, you know, and I told them, it's not easy to get into Harvard, you know? Like, you're a valedictorian if you're at Harvard. And not only are you a valedictorian, you're way better than most people at at least two other things, or you don't get in. And so like it's, I don't know what the acceptance rate is, like 5%, and believe me, not everybody applies. So it's a very selective school. And so why am I saying that? It's like, these are high quality kids. So I told them what I just told you. It's like, here you are at Harvard. It's like, get yourself educated, man. Read some books, learn to talk, learn to think. Make yourself into something. Get the hell out there and make the world that put you here happy that you were put there in that great institution. You know, and they came up to me afterwards and said, God, I wish someone would have told us that when we were in our first year. It's like, Jesus, why didn't someone tell them that? For God's sake, it's supposed to be the greatest university in the world. Is it so difficult to figure that out? One of the things that's really interesting about the Old Testament is that, and the Jews in the Old Testament, is that they don't take the path of Cain. Every time they're walloped by God, which is like fairly frequently, they say, we must have done something wrong and we have to set ourselves right. And that's a, an unbelievably heroic attitude because that's the alternative to cursing fate. It's like you take the responsibility for failure onto yourself. And you think, well, if I was just, maybe if I just had my act together a little bit more, if I took advantage of every opportunity that was put in front of me, if I wasn't resentful and bitter, then I could have done something that would have tilted the situation in a different direction. And like, that's almost inevitably true. Dostoevsky, I think, said something like, every man is responsible for everything that happens to him and everything that happens to everyone else. And that's, you know, that that's that's a, it's a crazy statement right it's a crazy statement and he was a pretty extreme person in many many ways but there's a level at which that's metaphysically true you know because what happens is that it's it's failure to act often that's the most catastrophic you know i mean i've uh, it's 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 to not do the right thing when the when the situation presents itself and it's very specific you know, you're constantly in situations where you could do the right thing if you were willing to take a risk that's actually of relatively moderate size. And you know that you could take the risk and you know that you should take the risk and you don't. And that happens to people all the time. And then what happens is the thing that they didn't oppose grows a little bit. 
and they shrink a little bit. And that starts a loop, hey? I noticed that there's always a group of, of my friends who always criticize what I'm saying and not even um, try to understand what I'm where I'm coming from. And um, I've, I've always wondered how to deal with that. I mean, I want to listen to what they're saying, but um, they're not understanding what I'm... They're not trying to listen to what I'm saying. So what would you do in that situation? I'm going to answer that very briefly. Okay. There's a, a line in the New Testament that's relevant to that. Do not cast pearls before swine. And what that means is that if people are not listening to you, stop talking to them. And that's really, that is the best piece of advice that I can give you. And what happens is, is that if you stop talking to people who aren't listening to you and start watching them instead, they will tell you what they're up to. But so if you have things to say, say them, but you find people that will listen, talk to them. The ones who aren't listening, pull back. Because you're, you're devaluing what you have to say by offering it to an audience that does nothing but reject it. And that's a good guideline to life in general. So pull back. Really sad to see that people are disenchanted and nihilistic and depressed and anxious and aimless and, and perverse and vengeful and, and all of those things. It's terrible. And then to see people question whether that's necessary and then to start to rise out of it. It's like, it's so fun. Like last night I was at, after my talk, it's overwhelming. I don't usually think about these things, but I was, I was after my talk last night, and so all these people line up, and, you know, they have their 15, 15 seconds with me, and they're kind of tentative. They're excited and attentive when they come up to talk to me, and then they have, you know, 15 seconds of time to tell me something. I'm really listening to them, and they're hesitant about whether or not to share the good news about their life, you know, and I think it's often because when people share good news about their life, people don't necessarily respond positively. You know, they don't get encouragement. And people need so little encouragement. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. And so they'll tell me something good, and I'm mm. like, God, oh, that's so good. You know, somebody says, oh, I'm getting along way better with my father. I hadn't seen him for 10 years, and now we get along. It's like, God, mm. great. Yeah. And then the, the power of that, you can't overstate the power of that for individuals to get their life together. The individual is mm. an unbelievably powerful force. And every single person who gets their act together a little bit has the capacity to spread that around them. Mm. It's, it's a chain reaction. And so it's a lovely thing to see. If you're hungry and you eat, well, that's good. But it's over and then you're on to the next thing, right? It, it's not exactly sustaining it's just necessary that's called consumatory reward by the way this other reward system is incentive reward and the incentive reward system works on dopamine this neurochemical dopamine which is also the, the neurochemical tracks that opiates and cocaine and amphetamines the drugs that people really like to abuse alcohol often for some people um, activate and so you might say if you don't have enough meaning in your life then you're more prone to addiction and that's definitely the case, even with rats. If you take a rat and you put him in a cage by himself and he has nothing to do, and then you give him access to cocaine, he'll get addicted to the point where he won't do anything but take cocaine. But if you throw the rat back in with a bunch of other rats and he gets to do rat things, then it's very hard to get him addicted to cocaine. And so the purposeless rat is prone to addiction. Well, it's the same with human beings. Now, here's a corollary to that, which is really cool. So 
the magnitude of the reward you experience as you're moving towards a goal is proportionate to the importance of the goal. So that means the more important the goal you pick, the more possibility there is for the kind of reward, let's say, it's really a state of being that is life-affirming and it is directly life-affirming in that, you know, like if you're in a football game and, you're, and it's an important football game and maybe you break a finger and, you know, normally that's, that's a problem, it hurts and you're going to stop doing whatever you're doing, but if you're right in the middle of the game, then you'll be so amped up on this reward system that it's analgesic, it stops the pain, it also suppresses anxiety. So if you have a purpose, then it's analgesic, it, it takes some of the pain out of life. It's very positive in that it motivates and energizes you and focuses you and makes you able to remember and, and pay attention. And it, it quells fear. And so those things are all direct. And so then you might think, well, what's the best possible goal? Well, and that's, that's the purpose, I would say, of religious training and philosophical training. It's like, just what the hell are you doing in the world? Psychologists have been, not all psychologists obviously, but the psychological profession is, is neck deep in this, in this pathology, has been beating the self-esteem drum for 50 years. Oh no, you're okay, you should feel good about yourself. Like, you're, you're fine the way you are. It's like you think, well, that's a calming message for people. It's like, no, it's not. It's not at all. And I, I watch my audiences, it's like, it's full of people in the audience who think, I'm suffering a lot more than I think is tenable. A whole bunch of it's my fault. My life is not in the order it should be. I know I'm doing 50 things wrong. It's like, what the hell's wrong with me? What's wrong with the people around me? This is really serious. And some, you know, well-meaning person comes up and says, oh, you're okay just the way you are. It's like, no one wants that message. It's like, no, I'm not okay the way I am. I'm not okay at all the way I am. I know that. And so, you know, when I'm, when I'm speaking to, to, when I'm speaking now, I say to people, well, well you're nowhere near what you could be. That's the, that's the positive message. It's like, yeah, you're a mess, but you don't have to stay that way. If you're a mess, you know it, obviously, you're suffering away like, like so much you can barely tolerate it. It's like, that's okay. You could do something about it. So and that's the thing that, that turns the lights on. It's like, you yeah. could do something about it. It's like, oh. If you're failing repeatedly, um, then there's probably something wrong it's possible that there's something wrong with the way that you're conceptualizing the world. Because you have a choice, right? If, if you keep making sacrifices and they don't work, there's a binary choice. And one is, well, there's something wrong with the structure of reality. And the other is, there's something wrong with your approach. And so then you might say, well, let's take the first idea. There's something wrong with the structure of reality. It's like, you're really going to say that, are you? You're really going to come out and say, I know enough to judge the nature of being. And, and then the alternative is also quite frightening because then, you know, you, it's you that's making the mistakes and you might be wrong at a really deep level and that might mean that a lot of you has to burn off and be transformed. Maybe even things about yourself that you think are admirable and that you like because your position, you know, your, your self-conceptualization is so warped and wrong. And that's really daunting. But, you know, when people set themselves up as the judge of being, I mean, I've written about this a fair bit in my new book, which is called 12 Rules for Life. When people set themselves up as the judge of being, then they take on what can only be described as a kind of satanic arrogance, because they've actually taken to themselves the moral right to criticize the structure of existence itself. It's like, you better be careful when you do something like that, because you're setting yourself up as the judge of being. 
There's another rule in my book, which is rule nine. Assume that the person that you're listening to knows something you don't. Well, they do. The person you're listening to knows some things you don't. You can be sure of that. Now, whether or not you can get to them is a different matter. But if you do get to them, it's a real deal for you. That's why you want to listen to the other person's arguments is because you're not everything you could be. You don't know the pathway forward with as much clarity as you could. And it's possible. This is one of the wonderful things that I've had the privilege of experiencing as a clinician. You know, because people, it's like I live inside a Dostoevsky novel as a clinician. People come in and they tell me about their lives and I listen to them and they tell me things that are just absolutely beyond belief, you know. And I learn from my clients constantly. Mm. They're, they're telling me honestly about their experience. They tell me things they wouldn't tell anyone else because I actually listen to them. But part of the reason I listen is because I'm desperate to listen. It's like there's a possibility I'm going to do something stupid in the next five yeah. years that's going to be like fatal. And there's some small possibility that if we have a decent discussion, that you'll tell me something that will eliminate some of my blindness so that I don't have to fall into that particular pit. And if you have a good sensitivity for the depth of the pit, then you know, you're pretty bloody motivated to avoid it. And so, and that, and, and that, and that dialogue, is, it's, it's dialogic, it's dialogos, right? It's shared logos. It's the way that we redeem ourselves mutually moving forward. I like this one, and I think, I mean, this is very clearly what you do. Be precise in your speech. So in, in Genesis, one of the things God has Adam do first, so God makes the world by speaking. Okay, so that's the first thing to think about. You're supposed to think like in a sophisticated way about this. The idea is that there's some integral relationship between communication and the structure of being. It's part of the role that consciousness plays in the world, whatever that role is. Language takes the chaos and makes it into things. And so God has Adam name all the animals. They're, they're not even really real until they have names. Now, they're more implicit, that's another. You know, here's an, here's an example. Let's say that you're having a rough patch in your relationship and you don't know why. It's unnameable. Is it real? Well, yeah, it's manifesting itself in a, like a physiological discomfort. Then you talk about it and you name it. It's like, it goes from this blurry thing that's kind of potential, it goes snap. Mm -hmm. And then it's this thing, right? And then that's a horrible thing. It's like a little poisonous thing, but it's not a whole foggy cloud of potential poison. It's like this little sharp poison thing. And then you think, okay, it's real. It's a little monster, but it's not, it's little at least. And now probably we can do something about it if we can admit to it. There is no faith and no courage and no sacrifice in doing what is expedient. What do you say to those viewers that don't pursue their dreams and are locked in their careers because they are too afraid to take risks and pursue something mm -hmm. meaningful? Well, the first thing I would say is, well, you should be afraid of taking risks and pursuing something meaningful. But you should be more afraid of staying where you are if it's making you miserable. It's like the first thing you want to do is dispense with the idea that you get to have any, any permanent security outside of your ability to contend and adapt. It's the same issue with children. It's like you're paying a price by sitting there being miserable. You might say, well, the devil I know is better than the one I don't. It's like, don't be so sure of that. The clock is ticking. Yeah, and if you're miserable in your job now and you change nothing, in five years you'll be much more miserable and you'll be a lot older. 
But isn't so, it a luxury to pursue what is meaningful? Our viewers have mortgages, they have children, yeah. they have payments and loans. It's well, a luxury to pursue because we, we lack the resources. Well, I don't think, I don't remember now, I'm not talking about what makes you happy. It's a luxury to pursue what makes you happy. It's a moral obligation to pursue what you find meaningful. And that doesn't mean it's easy. It might require sacrifice. If you need to change your job too, let's say you have a family and, 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 and children and a mortgage, you have responsibilities. You've already picked up those responsibilities. You don't just get to walk away scot-free and say, well, I don't like my job, I quit. That's no strategy. But what you might have to do is you think, well, this job is killing my soul. All right, so what do I have to do about that? Well, I have to look for another job. Well, no one wants to hire me. It's like, okay, maybe you need to educate yourself more. Maybe you need to update your, your curriculum vitae, your resume. Maybe you need to overcome your fear of being interviewed. Maybe you need to sharpen your social skills. Like, you, you have to think about these things strategically. If you're going to switch careers, you have to do it like an intelligent, responsible person. That might take you a couple of years of, of, of effort to do properly. I've dealt with hundreds of people in my clinical and consulting practice, and we set a goal, we develop a vision, and work towards it, and it, it, things inevitably get better for people. So it's not a luxury, it's, it's difficult. It's a moral responsibility and it isn't happiness. It's, it's not, the pursuit isn't for happiness.